Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. I did want everyone to know before we play the show that this show was actually recorded before the untimely death of Chaim Walder. I do want to read a Shaila question that I asked to a, a major posek about the show and continuing to run the show. So I said as follows, now that Chaim Walder is no longer alive, should we keep the show on or take it down? Certain things are more important now for people to here and certain things may be less important. And then I added on, should we try to edit out his name? And the response I got is as follows. Rabbi Walder's death is a tragedy, but the issues the show addressed are not going away. I think the show can remain, but perhaps be prefaced by a brief statement that this show was recorded before Rabbi Walder's tragic suicide. So that is the note right now that uh, this was recorded before the untimely death of Chaim Walder. But other than that, this there have been no changes to the show, so today we are talking about what unfortunately seems to happen way too often and call you so rabbis at risk that's what we're calling the so rabbis at risk when our leaders fail us and we will be talking about a number of issues in this regard before we go through them just to mention although it does seem that these scandals come up very often I do want to point out and this is mission critical that if we look on a percentage basis we have tens and tens of thousands of robots and leaders in Klal Yisrael, and the vast, vast majority are not getting involved in anything along the lines of what we are talking about today. It's not only Batal B'Shishim, but Batal B'Elef, Batal B'Elef, these scandals that we will be discussing. But nonetheless, we do have to discuss it because whenever it comes up, it is tragic it is a travesty. Just uh, obviously, just to state the obvious, uh, this is uh, being inspired, this topic, by what is in the news right now about Chaim Walder. Chaim Walder, the famous author, having written dozens and dozens of books, mostly known for the children's books, and he's involved in a scandal, and uh, we will discuss a little bit about the details in this introduction and a little bit more throughout the show. So the issues that we are going to be talking about are can allegations be believed? What if the allegations are only by one woman as opposed to three or 20? And uh, once we hear these allegations, should we stop reading the books, the teachings of the Rav or leader that is involved in the scandal? Should his books be removed from the stores? And we have to ask the fundamental question, how can somebody of this stature get involved in a scandal of this nature? Somebody who teaches exactly the opposite of what he is involved in. We'll also talk about the fundamental psychological question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did this individual, did he already have a proclivity, inclinations for being involved inappropriately in these relationships? Or it can be financial, did this individual as a menahel, as a principal, as a dean of a school, of a nonprofit, did he already have interest in taking the monies of other, or is it the position, when somebody is in a position of power, that brings on the standard Yetzirah that attacks everyone, and that's when the issues began. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was this individual looking for a position, he had these inclinations and desires already, or did it come on when he was already in that role? We were taught, we will talk about how do we come to grips with when our leaders fail us. Obviously, terribly disappointing, but worst is for the victims. 
It's devastating. For the family members of the perpetrator, it's devastating. So we will talk about all of that. How do we come to grips with someone who was purportedly pristine, a rav, had ethics, morals, adhering to the requirements of the Torah, but what was really going on is the exact opposite. And we will talk about the interesting question, are there certain character traits which are more common in perpetrators? Should we discuss the issues with our children? They're going to see the books disappear. They're going to hear their friends talking about the issues. Should we address it up front with them? And then another very important question. These issues come up when somebody is in a certain position. For example, it could be a rabbi. It could be a male marriage coach. Should they be advising women, for example, on Shalom bias issues? Or is it inevitable that issues will arise? We are going to have an amazing list of insightful guests on this show. Many, if not all of them, have experience in situations similar to those that we will be discussing today. We are going to start out with Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, the senior lecturer, the great Posek. And he will be discussing a couple situations of people that he knows that he was involved with. We will then go and talk from a psychological perspective with Dr. David Pelkowitz and try to get into the minds and the heads of the perpetrators, understanding what are they thinking. And then we will speak with Dr. Erica Brown. She is an award-winning author and lecturer and expert in Jewish leadership. She has written on Leadership Scandal, a whole book on the subject. And then we will go and speak with Rabbi Daniel Feldman, who is a Rosh Hashiva at Reeds. He too has written on our topic, and in particular, he has written a book of false facts. It's actually called False Facts and True Rumors, all about Lashon Har, and he talks about our issues when we have allegations and claims against people. Can we believe it? Can we act upon it? And then we will culminate the show with the fascinating individual, Rabbi Dr. Yisrael Levitz. He is the founding dean of the Family Institute of Neve Yerushalayim. They have six 65 therapists on staff, and they have hundreds of hours per week of consultations with people in need of assistance, therapy and psychological assistance. He is also the author of a book directly on point for our show, Rabbinic Counseling, and he actually teaches Smicha students how to avoid the issues that we will be talking about Today, before we go to our guests, a little on Parsha. We have in Parsha Shmos uh, some uh, interesting discussion and pointers, lessons about what's necessary to be a proper leader in Kalal Yisrael. And as is known, Paragimel, we're in the negotiation between Akadosh Baruch Hu and Moshe Rabbeinu. Akadosh Baruch Hu telling Moshe, Moshe, you're the leader of Kalal Yisrael. Go down and take the Jews out of Egypt. And we have Moshe saying, I am not the right person for the job. And Moshe Rabbeinu says as follows, Me anochi keilechel paro. Who am I? Who am I to go to Paro? I'm not fitting for this job. We know Moshe Rabbeinu was the most modest person. The most Anavdik, the most modest person in the world, he's saying, I'm not fitting for this position, this role as a leader. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu says to him, I will be with you, don't worry, but Vizelachahaos. This is the sign that you're the proper person for the job. What is the sign? So the Avne Ozel says as follows, the sign that Moshe Rabbeinu, you're the proper person for the job, is the fact that you don't think you're the proper person for the job. The fact that you think you don't have the right criteria for the job. A leader, he needs to have certain criteria 
criteria for a job. And Moshe is saying, I don't have those criteria. I'm not right for the job. Kaddish Baruch Hu says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a leader who's not looking for the job. That's the leader who's going to do it, L'Shem Shamayim. So in fact, there's an interesting story of two Talmudim, actually two brothers that were Hasidim, elderly Hasidim of the Rebbe Melublin, respected Hasidim of the Rebbe, and as time went on, the first of the brothers had a number of Hasidim who started following him as their Rebbe. But the second brother, who was also a great Talmud Chacham, had nobody following him as their Rebbe. And there was a time, came one day, when the two brothers met, and there was an interesting conversation between the two of them. And the second brother says to the first brother, the first one who had all the Hasidim, the second brother says, I'm just wondering, my dear brother, why is everyone following you and not following me. And the first brother responded, you know, I have a similar question. I also asked myself, why is everyone following me? Why aren't they following you? And then brother number one continued and said, it could be from the nusachs of our questions that could answer your question. Look at what you're asking and look at what I'm asking. You're asking, why aren't people following me? Why are they following you? And I am asking, why are people following me? I think they should be be following you. And the message from this is if a leader has ulterior motives, if he's looking to be a leader, he wants to have followers, or he have has ulterior motives either going in or once and he's in that position. It's not about doing good for Claudius or doing good for his constituents, doing good for his Talmudim, doing good for his institution, but something comes about being in it for him. It's about me. It's about my ego. It's about my Yetzirah. It's about filling my Yetzirah. That's not a leader for Klal Yisrael. That's not the Os that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was telling Moshe Rabbeinu Zelechala Os. This is the Os. The fact that you don't want to do it for yourself. That you feel you're not suitable for the position. That's why I want you to be the leader. But if somebody is in it for himself, if he's there to feed his ego and whatever that means in any way that he feels he needs to feed it, that's not the person should, that should be taking the job or if it happens after he takes the job, that's not the person who should stay in that job. And in fact, there's an interesting drusha on the Pasuk. We're going back to Parshas Vayeshev, talking a bit about Er, Vayi Er, Bechor Yehuda, Rabbeinu Hashem. He was evil in the, in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the Rebbe from Kabrin says as follows, Vayi Er, Vayi is always the language of sorrow. This is a sorrowful statement, a sorrowful time, that Er, Er is the language of inspiration to wake up, that we have somebody who's supposed to be a leader in Kalal Yisrael. That's the Bechor Yehuda, leader in Kalal Yisrael. Yehuda is representing the Jews. Somebody who should be representing Kalal Yisrael and he is Rabbi Nei Hashem and he's evil in the eyes of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. That is Vayhi. That is sorrowful. Woe into the nation. Woe to the generation that the leaders should be inspiring us but the leaders themselves need correcting. So in fact... That is going to be our topic. And again, just to stress, it is a small sliver minority of leaders or other rabbanim or leaders that have gotten involved in these scandals and allegations. But when it happens, it's a disaster for Klali. So I just do want to say one more important point. Uh, many, if not all, of the interviews that we had were done a few days or even longer before hard evidence came out against Chaim Walder, there has been a basing that has been at work in Sfat, 
interviewing women and men who had involvement with him, and unfortunately it seems to have gone from simple allegations against Chaim Walder to hard evidence against him. And it could be that uh, some of the discussions that we had about use or non-use of his books, just put it away for now until we have more concrete evidence. It could be that if we re-ask those questions at this point, now that we do have more evidence that has come out, it could be that the responses wouldn't be simply put it aside for now, but uh, it could be that we should expunge the books from our houses. So that's just an interesting uh, point that we'll leave as an open question. And now for the riddle of the week. Parsha Shmos, we have a fairly simple question. We'll have to see how easy or difficult the responses are. The answer is, but the question is as follows. When we have the discussions between Moshe Rabbeinu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moshe refusing to go be the leader of Kalal Yisrael. He did not have a lot of interest in being such. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu saying, you are going to be the leader to head down to Mitzrayim and lead Klai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. And the question is as follows. In the discussions, Moshe Rabbeinu asks HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when Klai Yisrael, when I go down and Klai Yisrael asks, who is this God that you are representing? Moshe Rabbeinu says as follows, Ramruli Omar Aleihem, when they ask me, what is his name? What should I respond? And the question is, why couldn't Moshe Rabbeinu simply say one of the known names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Elohim, Tzvah and the like, why does Moshe Rabbeinu have to ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu what name should I use? And now, let's go to our guests. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number 2, or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz. Rabbi Breidowitz is a renowned posek and lecturer. He has actually written on our very topic. He published an article in Ara- at Jewish Action called Healing from Rabbinic Abuse. Actually, he was asked to, to write that article after a certain event that he was involved in. And as mentioned, he has uh, been involved in claims against community leaders, Rabbanim, and false claims, false allegations as well. Rabbi Breidowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and an honor. Rabbi Breidowitz, I want to dive right into the core of the issue. If you can uh, share with us an experience or two when you needed to deal with serious allegations, either against the Rav or a community leader, walk us through what happened. You don't have to name names um, unless you want to. Uh, and uh, and and how does how do these things typically happen? And and what goes down? What's the process? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, well, first of all, the, the good news is that, Baruch Hashem, these cases are uh, not as common as sometimes the press makes them out to be. And I think it's very, very important that uh, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, as the expression goes. Uh, the vast majority of our rabbis and our lay leaders are conscientious, yirei shemayim, caring people. And uh, sometimes in the superheated exaggeration of blogs and the Internet, uh, like the whole Torah community is indicted. So I think we have to keep it in perspective. Nevertheless, whenever there is an occurrence, uh, it is very, very serious. It must be addressed. And it can often be a very, very tragic uh, consequence. Uh, I was involved myself in uh, two cases of what you might call clergy abuse, uh, both of which uh, were eventually proven to be true. Uh, one involved a, a very charismatic youth leader 
uh, again, most of the audience knows, but I'd rather not mention any names, uh, a person who was extremely talented at what he did, but unfortunately, uh, there were also many incidences of abuse, uh, severe emotional abuse, but physical and sexual as, as, as well. Uh, and a second was uh, another rabbi uh, in my community who uh, was actually a friend of mine and someone who I still consider to be a friend because I, I care about him. Uh, again, uh, the tragedy here is, number one, people are being victimized. That's the number one tragedy. But number two, uh, there is a second tragedy that maybe people might criticize me for bringing up, and that is the fact that Klau Yisrael lost loses the talents of extraordinary people in some ways who had very much to give. But because of this abusive behavior, uh, they're, they're no longer eligible for this type of leadership. So there's kind of a double tragedy going on here. Again, I, I do want to emphasize our first and primary concern has to be for the, for the victims. How these things are discovered? Well, uh, initially, as, as we know from many other scandals in Yeshiva University and elsewhere, there's sometimes silence for a very long time. Victims are embarrassed to come forward. But eventually, the wall breaks down. There's a certain critical mass when enough people are, are suffering. Uh, somebody is going to come forward. And once somebody comes forward, other people have the courage. They become emboldened. Uh, to come forward as well. And then the dam breaks. And then at some point, uh, the community or its institutions or the legal system very often uh, will take will come forward. And um, as tragic as that is, I have to say that ultimately, uh, it is serving the positive good of trying to make our communities safer, uh, more secure. Now, the issue of abuse, of course, uh, applies whether you're dealing with a perpetrator that's a rabbi or a lay person or a religious Jew or a non-religious Jew. But once again, when it's rabbinical, there's an extra layer of dimension here because these are the Ene Ho'eda, these are our leaders and, and, and the like. I do want to point out, in case people would identify, uh, it's that uh, the second instance that I mentioned uh, about a rabbi in, in my community I do want to emphasize that uh, there was no uh, actual sexual abuse. Rather, it was more of a peeping Tom type of thing. So, so yeah, if that makes a difference, it is important to underscore that uh, he was not guilty of the more extreme forms, although the behavior was certainly uh, very, very abominable. Right. Now, there's also the, the third category of un unfortunate people who are negatively impacted is that the, the family members of the yes. person. And, yes, and yes. A, life, a, life gets, a life gets destroyed on both sides of the equation. Uh, the victims have had their lives uh, destroyed, and hopefully they will recover. And of course, uh, the abuser's family are also victims that, again, perhaps do not garner as much sympathy uh, as uh, they need. But nevertheless, uh, if you look at the whole picture, there are so many people that are suffering. And right. uh, we hope to try to help as many as we can. So let's walk through. Somebody comes to you and says, Rabbi Reidowitz, I need to speak with you. Can I close the door? You immediately know that there's something serious. You can tell from the appearance of the individual. And they start telling you about an incident or incidents. It could be that it involves them, or it can be that they heard rumors or heard substantiated rumors more than rumors. What's the first thing that you do? What's the first tape that step that you take? Well, um, I know that in, in many, many circles, the concept of going to a rabbi to talk about abuse of another, uh, by another rabbi, etc., is considered verboten because there is this concept that we rabbis uh, have a conspiracy of silence 
uh, and our job is to obscure and our job is to prevent and our job is to simply uh, derail the process. Uh, I, I think that uh, that itself is an unfair statement. Uh, not that it never happens, but certainly uh, I think any conscientious rabbi is very, very, very concerned about abusive behavior and uh, does have a strong desire to help protect the victims to whatever degree possible, including uh, calling the police or social services or, or whichever department would be able to handle it. So the first thing I would do is we would try to uh, have a conversation as to the uh, accuracy of the information. Uh, obviously, if it's a firsthand account, uh, the person happened to them, uh, they know what they're talking about. Uh, if it's rumors, we have to know, you know, uh, how significant are the rumors? Because as I say, I myself have been involved in false accusations in which a family that was accused or members of a family that were accused, their lives were totally destroyed. And they had to leave the, not just their home city, they had to leave the Jewish community. They are no longer religious. Uh, they actually went to court for defamation and received a great amount of money in an undisclosed uh, settlement. So these things happen as well. So I think there needs to be a conversation as to how significant uh, the indicators are, uh, how credible the allegations are. Again, uh, we give alleged victims the benefit of the doubt. I think. I, I'm not going to suggest at all that they have a burden of proof more likely than not, that's much, much higher. But it has to be what Halakha calls a raglayim ledavor. Raglayim ledavor means something that has a reasonable possibility or probability of being being true. That's far less than 50%. It's hard to quantify it a little bit. Uh, but it does have to be something. It can't just be, I didn't like the way he looked at his kid. Right. So there may be no physical evidence, there may be no uh, recordings and the like. Um, but if we have one person, he said, she said, you know, that 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 is may not be very strong. But when we have allegations of three people, or when it grows from three to 20 people, even if it's just uh, not, not just but it, it's conversation as opposed to physical physical evidence, that, that's more of a raglan. Sure, sure, sure. But, but, it, but it also depends on how, how you get your numbers. Meaning to say, let's say it starts off with one person. It starts off with A. And B comes in and tells me, oh, I heard from A. And C comes in and tells me, I heard from B. Then really, you're not really building anything on that because each person is simply repeating what they heard from a, from a first person. Now, if you're talking about an A, B, and C have independent things that they saw, then you are correct. Numbers themselves will create a certain probability that may give rise to Raglayim Ladover very, very easily. I'm just making the point, though, if each one is simply piggybacking on what they heard from the prior source, then it's no better. What they're saying is no better than, than that prior source. I was referring to, to victims. The victims, because you know what we're seeing right now with with Chaim Walder, the the initial yeah. report was three women making allegations, and no, there's, there's, no, there's no question that uh, when you have uh, multiple victims coming forward, uh, th that lechol hapachos is going to create raglayim ledaber. Now again, raglayim ledaber does not mean a person is definitely uh, guilty. You know, a basin hasn't ruled upon it. A court has not ruled upon it. There has been no final finding. But Raglan Ludover is enough, number one, to take provisional action, such as removing a, or at least suspending a person from a certain position, uh, pending authority and, and a, a pending, you know, final resolution uh, and the like. 
So, yeah, yeah, um, I, I, I do agree with you 100%, but I would just uh, emphasize that until there is a final determination, the, the protective actions that we can and must take should be regarded as provisional. Provisional. So that means temporary, basically. Temporary. That's- until, right. Until further resolution. So w- w- would the Raglain Ladavar remove the prohibition of Lashon Hara? Would it remove the prohibition of going public if there is a, uh, if we view there as, as a public need, if this person is viewed as, as, as a threat or, or is that not enough? And if, if he's viewed as a threat, maybe that should be more of a, a local specific announcement to the area that he lives in. Can you have a headline show on such a thing when we have... <laughs> When we just look up on Wikipedia, now went from three to 20 women that, that made allegations. It doesn't say names. It doesn't say the, so, you know, it's what, based on, you know, a report of one newspaper, but it doesn't bring any evidence to it. So it, can, can we having a headline show talking about what are literally allegations as opposed to, to proof? Yeah, th- this is uh, a delicate question because, again, I, I, I'm so cognizant in, in my own experience as a rabbi of lives being destroyed by, by false allegations, and, and such a thing does exist. But halachically, it's absolutely very clear that if someone is engaging in abusive behavior, and abusive behavior is to some degree a matter of pikuach nefesh, we have to remember this, uh, victims of abuse have committed suicide. Uh, when they have not committed suicide, their lives have still been shattered such a degree that uh, the abuser could be considered a rodent uh, in many, many ways. Now, granted, we haven't yet proven that the person is an abuser, but uh, once there is even a chashash or a glyon that such a thing is possible, then not only are we permitted, but we, we may even have a chiyah of losama dodam reyacha to inform affected people uh, that this person is potentially dangerous or potentially abuser. Now, let me emphasize, in making that type of disclosure, you do have to say, you do have to say, the allegations have not been proven, but they are substantial enough that we have to be choshesh. There is a whole category of Mashmara in which, even if I don't accept a statement as unequivocally true, I can accept it as possibly true in order to take necessary precautions. So I think it would fall exactly within that, but it has to be worded in a way that still protects what you might call some presumption of innocence, which Halakha recognizes as well. But we can certainly take the steps that are needed to protect people uh, from improper behaviors done towards them. Uh, Now, whether it should take the form of a a newspaper headline, a TV show, that's a different question. One might uh, make the argument, as the Chavitz Chaim says, that even when Lashon Hara is permitted, the Toelis, to protect people, from uh, negative behaviors, uh, you try to limit it to those people who are at risk. Now, that may mean notifying the various institutions to terminate or suspend at least their affiliation with a person who might be teaching young young people or interacting with young people. Uh, it wouldn't automatically uh, justify you know, open publicity. Now, in terms of your last point about the headlines, we then have another aspect. Though, and that is, once the matter is public knowledge, even if it was a violation of Lashonara, so at that point, it would be similar to the, the principle of Ape Tolosa, and that's really a separate issue of how you deal with public figures. So really, you're, you know, you're breaking it down into two issues. I think initially, if we had a media that would be halakhically conscientious, which of course uh, we do not have 
a lot of things might be kept a bit more discreetly and uh, more targeted to protect victims as opposed to making something a general story. On the other hand, given the realities of the media and the internet, uh, it's going to come out anyway. Once it is public, I think the laws of Lashonara Bechlau would, would not really be fully applicable under those circumstances. So, so hence, headlines can jump on the bandwagon uh, once everybody else you know, knows about it. Okay, that's our head to everyone who's listening. So uh, we're going to go forward now with uh, some additional questions based on it. So it seems that, uh, Rabbi Breidot, we have two head terry. Number one is a public need. If there's a public need, we can go public. And even though we know we are balancing two conflicting imperatives, we have the imperative to not um, bring allegations against an individual, which we don't have real proof against. But on the other hand, we have to protect the public that large. So we have those two, two conflicting imperatives. And if there's a public need and Raglain Ladavar, then it sounds like we can go forward with it. And, and uh, on the other hand, something, even if there's not a public need, but something that is already widely known, publicly known, then that would be a heter as well. So, so yeah. uh, on the public need, Let's assume that this was not publicly known yet, but defining a public need. Let's get into the books of Chaim Walder. And it's not necessarily only a Chaim Walder question. There have been other people who have been involved in scandals in the past. There was a chief rabbi of Israel that was involved in a scandal, and I had his set of svarim. Is there a public need to tell people these books should not be used, or is there intrinsically nothing wrong with the books? that they are independent of the uh, alleged perpetrator, and that would not be deemed a, a public need? Yeah, uh, this is a very, very hard question that I myself am agonizing over. In fact, I get calls from parents. Uh, I remember uh, when I uh, spent a sabbatical year in Eretz Israel in 1999 before I made Aliyah. Uh, so our son was at the time uh, 12 years old, and his favorite books were the Chaim Walder Kids Speak books. Uh, they were very part, part of a very you know treasured childhood that he had when he had that year in Israel. And on one level, here is the problem. And I think I think you're, you're alluding to it in your question. Uh, if somebody is suspected of, of being an abuser, so obviously we have to remove him from the risky situations that are help, uh, that are hurting people. So if there's a teacher, if he has private contact with people, uh, we got to stop that. On the other hand, if he happens to also be a very talented author and people are simply buying his books, in no way is the purchase of a book by Chaim Alder going to be endangering anybody and putting anybody at risk. So one could make the argument, hey, listen, uh, he wrote the books. Uh, the books are good. Uh, he's not going to be coming into my son's bedroom uh, at all in any way. So what's the problem? It's good. It's a good book. So that's one way of looking at it in which uh, you know, let's go ahead and just keep him on the book, on the bookshelf and in the bookstores. On the other hand, that also sends a terrible, terrible, terrible message to our children and to the adults in which a person, and again, I, I absolutely want to emphasize nothing has been definitively proven. We're only le- dealing with Raglaim with other. So I'm speaking in a general term that uh, somebody could do tr- tremendous Averos and yet be patronized and supported by the Jewish community who will look to his books as a source of moral teaching and Muslim. At a minimum, you get a problem called I'm giving support and encouragement to people who are actively uh, committing sins. So it may very well be that in terms of protecting the public, there is no need to ban the book, but there's a secondary consideration of not taking a balavera 
as a source of a moral voice. Now, it would be different, for example. Let's imagine you had an abuser who happened to write a cookbook or, or something of that, of that nature, whatever, a book on geology. You know, one can make the argument, listen, the guy has to make a Parnassa. You know? <laughs> so let me read about geology. It's a little different when the books specifically deal with morality, with ethics, with Musser, with Hashkafa. Now, if you had a Kabbalistic band, you could even say, oh, uh, it becomes Tameh, the ideas become Tameh because of the abuser. I don't know if you have to go there, that even if we assume that the ideas might still be very good, it's a bit, no, but there's a similar controversy about music and Again, that ain't kind of become a lahirat. Like, does the music become tummy? Uh, you know, some would say it does. But even without that, I, I think that uh, there's something very confusing to our children that we would elevate as a moral voice someone that is that is as guilty of, of of these types of allegations. So I think that uh, Feldheim uh, made a very responsible decision that they were not going, even though it's a loss to Claudius drama again part of the tragedy, uh, in which they were not going to carry the books, but to their very great credit, they absolutely made the point that the allegations have not been proven, and it is their hope that somehow Rabbi Walder would be found to be exonerated. And I think that's a very well put together statement that incorporates uh, both of these uh, ideas, protecting the public uh, as well as protecting the potential reputation of a person before guilt has been, has been established. Yeah, they, that uh, that uh, press release that Feldheim released was definitely very responsible. I know they had Das Torah review it, uh, Ellie Mayer Hollander and Yitzhak Feldheim. They run the place, Kedasu Chedin, and uh, they did have rabbinic uh, input on, on every word of that press release that they put out, and it, it definitively... I thought it was a good, a good statement. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So, Rabbi Bright, one more thing on my mind here, and uh, it may be a little bit opening up Pandora's box. I know it's a big sugya, but maybe a couple thoughts on it. If the activity involved in, and it seems that the, for the most part, a lot of the activity is, is uh, sexual in nature, but it could be f- financial um, scandals as well. I think those are probably the big two. Um, if something is illegal, against the law, and we do have a concept of Dina de Malchusa Dina as well, and we don't have to go so much into the Dina de Malchusa Dina when it applies and when it doesn't apply, but the Mesira concept of uh, turning over somebody to the secular authorities, having the secular authorities deal with things, as, as we've seen, we don't have the ability in our communities to deal with perpetrators of these types of crimes. We don't have uh, mechanisms of punishment. Um, what are the mysterious issues of going to the authorities when we have uh, allegations against an individual? Yeah, yeah. So again, these are these are very, very good questions. Uh, let me first sharply differentiate two scenarios. Uh, when you have allegations of sexual abuse, uh, Masira has absolutely no possible relevance here. Uh, Rebel Yashif has made it very, very clear that at least if there are raglayim with them, which is important, uh, one not only may, but one must go to the secular authorities. And even if that means the child will be removed from his parents, and even if it means he will be placed in a non-religious or a non-Jewish home, Rebel Yashif said reporting to the authorities is mandatory. This is a very, very important point, because you're dealing with a rodent, you're dealing with someone that is potentially engaged in life-threatening behaviors. So that's one situation. So when it comes to sexual abuse and the like, I think the laws of Nasira basically just don't apply at all and go ahead and do what you have to do. When it comes to, let's say, what you might call a nonviolent crimes, uh, somebody is evading their taxes, somebody is cheating, 
uh, in business, even though that is absolutely usher, even if we assume, let's assume for argument's sake, which is probably correct, that Dinazim al-Kusadina actually says that this is forbidden, sinful behavior. But the fact that I'm aware of it, one might still say, well, am I supposed to be a, you know, a tattletale? Am I supposed to uh, turn somebody into the government for that type of behavior? That's a much more difficult proposition, because uh, if indeed it's I mean, I understand that technically there's no such thing as a victimless crime because even even not paying taxes, you know, something gets hurt, you know, and the like. But still, you know, it's not violent. Or there's no identifiable victims of abuse. So I think the arguments that that would be subject to Masira might be a little bit stronger. But there's a very, very fascinating uh, ritva that the Beis Yosef brings. The Gemara in Asetras Apailan, the Gemara in Baba Metzia actually brings that Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, buried next to him in Meiron, was employed as a policeman. <laughs> I guess everybody needs to augment their parnasa. He was employed as a policeman by the Romans to apprehend Ganovan. Gemara gives different strategies that he had to determine who was guilty, who was not guilty. And as you re- now remember, that the Roman punishment for theft was uh, sometimes crucifixion. I mean, people actually got killed. Uh, because of this, and uh, someone tied it, like, you know, well, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, you're delivering Yidden over Parmana to the... Parmana de Malka. Parmana de Malka. Yeah, and he said, I am getting rid of the thorns in the vineyard. Now, uh, the Gemara did end with Leo and Nabi telling him, let the Baal HaKerem come. So the Gemara is a little ambiguous. Uh, is the Gemara saying that he was right in what he did, or he's wrong in what, what, what he did? And, and but, let a yeah. deal with it. Let yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah, right. right. So, so that's the question. So the the, the base Yosef brings a ritva. I'm not sure if we have. I I, 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 know, I was never able to actually find the ritva inside, but base Yosef brings it. Where the ritva says a fascinating thing that since under Dina de Malchusadina, a Jew must respect the laws of a civil government. For me to assist the government in enforcing obligatory laws against Jews, I mean, is not Mesira, because essentially I am helping non-Jewish societies fulfill their Noahide imperative of, of Dinim. That is a very, very fascinating reform, because that would be the key to many Shilas in modern responses. But can I be an IRS agent? No. Uh, can I be on a jury that may convict a Jew of a crime? According to the Ritva, uh, if Dina de Malchusadina obligates the Jew to follow that secular law, I can assist the state in enforcing it. Uh, nevertheless, even then, the Gemara indicates that it's not a, it's not a Mishnah's Hasidim, it is not optimal behavior. So I think what emerges from the Ritva, and again, I'm not even saying that Allah is like the Ritva, because the Chassab Sofer is Mashma, that he would treat it as Masirah. It's an, it's an interesting Machlokas. But even like the Ritva, I would say that it's Lavdafka optimal that we should be spying on people and reporting all of their law violations if nobody is being hurt. So it's a very, very interesting question, uh, but I do want to sharply separate that question from the sexual abuse. Sexual abuse, absolutely not. A masira should never be invoked in these cases because actual people, usually children, are at risk.
And but obviously you have to ask Apsak, and couldn't be that you have to go to. You do have to. You do have to ask Apsak. And again, I, uh, I I once just mentioned that in passing. I, I I didn't even think it was a controversy. And people get very upset. Oh, you have to go to a rabbi because they seem to identify totally incorrectly that going to a rabbi means the rabbi is going to say no. No, that's not what it means. Uh, if there are rabbis with davar, the rabbi is often going to well, well will say yes on sexual abuse on. Financial crime is, is, as I say, a different type of shikol because it is victimless, although it's wrong, although it is wrong, but it is victimless. And one has to think twice about getting somebody sent to jail for, for what is essentially a victimless crime. If somebody is using their institution as, as a piggy bank, as opposed to cheating on taxes, which is more anonymous, th- there could be situations where there are certainly ma- ma- Bernie Madoff and uh, financial crimes of that nature would be. You're 100% correct. Uh, number one, a case like Bernie Madoff, uh, his financial improprieties were literally destroying the livelihoods and of, of, of thousands and thousands of people. That certainly is a public need uh, to uh, uh, to uh, disable him. Uh, and similarly, uh, if you have the types of behaviors which, if they would be known, they could jeopardize Torah institutions like financial improprieties of yeshivas. Well, the Ramah himself says if somebody is engaged in counterfeiting, which was a financial crime, the Ramah said uh, there was no Isra of Mesira there because in those days, uh, counterfeiting was a crime of collective guilt and you were endangering the whole Jewish community. So certain types of financial improprieties can actually have the status of redeem. So I'm not referring to that. I'm just referring to the, I'm a yachid and I didn't report, I didn't report some income on my tax return. So it's one thing, if you're an auditor of the IRS, Rav Moshe says that's your job, so you could follow the Iker I did that you could report it. But you know, I, I don't, I don't think it, it's not. It's certainly not a Mishnah Chassidim for me to call up the IRS because I know that you didn't report some income in your tax return. Like, well, am I not Kamina? Now, even then, like the report would not be Masira. Interesting. Even that would not be Masira. But on that, I think Elio and Abi said, "Let Hashem take care of." It. Yes, for sure. Rabbi Breidowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Joining us now is Dr. David Pelkowitz. Dr. Pelkowitz is a world-renowned psychologist with many areas of expertise, including coping with trauma and transmitting values to our children. We'll be talking about both of those today. And also relevant as he teaches a pastoral counseling class to Smicha students how to act and how not to act, how to avoid getting into trouble. Dr. Pelkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Nice to see you. So, uh, you know, one question that comes to mind, obviously, we're still in the midst of the Chaim Walder allegations, allegations, and these things do come up from time to time. The vast majority of leaders that we have in Klal Yisrael and Rabbanim are pure and pristine, and they don't get involved in this. So that causes it to be even more shocking when we do have somebody who was looked at as pure and pristine to date, and then allegations come out and serious allegations um, by multiple people. So the first question is, when you have somebody of that stature, he's successful, he's doing well, probably well financially, putting out a lot of books, and he's well regarded. What is he thinking when at the same time, if it's a Rav, he's giving lectures about Torah and Musr and ethics, or if it's a writer writing about emotions and feelings of children in particular, what's going on inside of his head when he, in his personal life, behind the doors, he's acting in highly improperly? 
Right. So I think I think it's it, it, it's varied depending on each situation. But um, a commonality that um, seems to be present in a lot of these situations is there's a lack of integration of their values. My guess is that they start um, just like any other rabbinic leader starts. They start with you know good intentions and a high level of idealism and a high level of passion about what they're doing. But very often with somebody who um, has a charismatic leadership style married to a narcissistic kind of mode of relating to others, they start to believe their own press. And it's a gradual process, like a slippery slope. I don't think anybody starts with the idea that I'm going to take advantage of my position to uh, sexually abuse, um, you know, young women or, or boys. I think they start with a, um, often with, with good intentions, but they are often surrounded by uh, a um, extremely um, adoring kind of um, f- followers. Um, and there's often nobody to um, serve as a corrective to help them really see what's going on. And they start to believe in their own press. Uh, very often, I find that, um, that um, there's a combination of what gradually happens with that slippery slope is they overestimate their, their, their abilities they can uncheck, especially if they don't have a strong figure in their life correcting them and keeping them honest. They develop an overpowering sense of self-importance, a distorted sense of their own limits. And um, over time, because of Adam Karovetz Lotsmo, they gradually get into this um, uh, kind of a mindset where they're constantly um, justifying their own behavior. And little by little, um, they've um, they've somehow convinced themselves. Look, I'm not really doing damage here. Um, I'm doing it for the good of the person, for the good for the good of the person who's truly a victim. And 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 it's a gradual kind of thing. I I, I, I in the smicha students I've worked with over the years. Um, I I I don't think anybody necessarily starts this way. Maybe you know. Maybe one out of uh, two, three hundred starts with some issues in this area. That can certainly happen, and we've had that happen. You know, because they might have a tendency towards um, kind of um, you know sexually deviant behavior. But for the most part, I think it's a much more gradual process. Okay, that's interesting. So, so basically, what you're saying is, it seems we have three three issues, and the, it's the confluence of three issues. Number one is we have the typical Yitzhara, but maybe on steroids. Number one. Number two, we have personality traits, narcissistic tendencies, a charismatic personality. And number three, we have circumstances, for example, no checks and balances on this individual, like a, a typical, a wife would act as the Azer Konegdo, who with a, a gentle hand could guide the husband. But in this situation, there is not that Azer Konegdo, be it a wife or others around in his chatzar that would act as a, a, a stop to uh, the slippery slope from all these three, uh, three factors. Right. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So that, that, that was interesting that, you know, in the chicken, the egg, which came first, you're really saying typically uh, we, we have maybe some inborn inclinations, personality based, but the position, the position of power. And when you influence, inspire others, it somewhat goes to your head. And then what is it? You, you want to use that power? Where does it go from there? Well, yeah, again, in other words, if you believe your own press, 
Um, and you might have a tendency, like you're saying, in that area. Um, it becomes a gradual thing. And Adam Korovets a lot smoke. People often aren't even aware of how they're gradually getting pull, pulled into things. And, um, you know, I... I um, you know, th- th- again, I don't. I don't think the position will do it to a, t- a typical rabbi, rabbinic leader. Uh, but I think the position will take people who have this kind of personality style and maybe a problematic family life, um, and and you know might put them over the top. Uh huh. Now, now there are victims, and that th- that is the most unfortunate thing here when there are victims. If we're talking about uh, sexual deviancy, and uh, as we see, these things have a significant lag in when the information comes out. We saw that recently with uh, Meshi Zahav, and uh, now we've seen it with with Chaim Walder. The allegations go back years and uh, oftentimes decades. Why don't uh, people come out quicker when they see that they are... There are perpetrators out there, either the victims themselves or people who may hear about uh, the victimization. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of the general public, it's hard. It's hard to um, to not almost like lie to yourself. It becomes very, um, very easy to try to look the other way. You know, the kind of uh, self-deceptive statements that people might say when they see this, they say, oh, I, I you know, such a respected person, it can't possibly be. Or how how can I speak less and horror about this person who's so respected? And, um, and, and people are stressed, especially during COVID, people are... Um, have a lot on their plate. And the more pressured a person feels, I think um, the less likely they are to be able to have the kind of empathy and commitment it takes to take difficult action. You know, thinking about the Princeton summary uh, seminary study, that famous study where people, seminarians are on their way to, um, uh, to give a talk on, um, on um, that you can't look the other way if you see people in distress. You know, so, uh, you know, the Easter of Halama and um, on their way to have the test on their um, on their um, uh, mastery of this subject to give a drush on it is obviously in a non-Jewish population of Princeton, um, two psychology researchers stage that one of them is having a heart attack and the other calls out to these people going by, help me, help me. I don't know how to do CPR. And a fairly high percentage of these um, um, individuals pretend not to hear it. And they go on to have their test. And when they're asked, how could you have done this? I mean, how could you not? You're about to give a lecture on how you have to be there for people no matter what. How could you uh, ignore the calls for help? And the number one predictor was that people were stressed and in a rush they almost got tunnel vision and they didn't see what was right in front of their eyes. You know, literally they didn't practice what they preached. And that happens, I think, with abuse. You know, it's it's so hard to, to you know, to come forward. You know, it's going to very possibly end up in the press. People could come after you for false accusations. Uh, people could attack you for you yourself daring to attack a respected rabbi. And um, that's on that level. On, on the level of the victim, there it's much easier to understand. You know, most, especially ongoing abuse, 
thrives on secrecy and the secret becomes the source of shame and the source of protection. And there are often threats made by the abuser. You better not tell. Um, and um, uh, people just, um, you know, if you're a victim, it's so easy or a survivor, hopefully, ultimately, um, it's so easy to, um, to believe that and become frightened, especially if you come from a background where you didn't have um, a strong sense of self as you were as you were uh, growing up, but- which, could, which can often be the uh, target of the uh, of the perpetrator. They often shop around for people to see who's going to be the person who's going to give the least um, the least amount of resistance here. It's important to realize we can't blame the victim. You know, um, you know, because very often there are many other factors that go into this, and it's, it feels to me a little bit like victim blaming, blaming with you know what I just said, but. It, the reality is that that um, you know that that very often um, uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse have a very um, practiced eye for finding the person who's going to be m- most compliant and least likely to disclose. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, Dr. Pelkowitz, there are other consequences. We're talking about the victims and the people who may have heard about it. Those are all uh, people who are victimized, but. There are also everyone else out there who either knew this person, knew of this person, or even if they didn't know the person at that point, when they hear the news, and certain people are, are known about, Chaim Walder is world-renowned, and uh, Meshi Zahav was, was uh, known well, but you hear stories about people who are prominent in their localities, and uh, they're well-regarded, a rough here, or a dying there a principal here. And these things, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about different occurrences in my head that have happened over the past few years. And this can also rock our belief in our leaders. And we have to obviously bear in mind that the vast, vast, vast majority of our gedolim, our leaders, our rabbanim are not involved in these things, but it does hurt. And, and how should we come to grips with this so that when we hear of this person who knew Shas inside and out, but he could do this nonetheless, or this person who was talking to children about emotions and what makes you happy and sad. And now we hear that he was hurting children. How do we come to grips with something like that? Yeah, so I I think that, um, you know, largely, um, we need to, um, we, 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 we need to understand that this is not in any way easy. It is a hard thing to come to grips with. It is something that is typically met with silence because there's so many ways that we could lie to ourselves about what's happening. You know, to um, you know, it's one thing to think about it theoretically when you're in the throes of a situation. Um, where you're thinking about going public about um, somebody who you suspect is being abusive, and it's somebody who has an, a, an amazing kind of reputation. It's it's often like that. Um, it's just it's just very very hard. Um, I've I've been there a number of times because sometimes these situations come my way, and it, it doesn't get any easier to make to make that decision because it, it's it's just. Um, you know, it's it, it requires um, tremendous focus. This thing called ethical fading, 
which I think we might have talked about um, in another in another context. Now, um, ethical fading is that when when people are asked what's the right thing to do, and it's just like a scenario that's more theoretical. Almost everybody, certainly everybody in our community, knows exactly what the right thing is to do. It's easy to say in this situation, I should you know I should definitely report. And I should definitely pick up the phone and call. But very often, I'll get calls from prominent rabbis who have been at the forefront of, um, you know, of um, giving muster to people that we have to make reports, we have to make reports. But then when they actually have a situation with somebody who they know or somebody who they're friendly with or somebody where, you know, your wife may uh, spend a lot of time with his wife or your children with his children, it becomes much more difficult. Ethical fading is they find that as soon as there's that kind of self-interest, part of the brain that takes over Instead of it being our frontal prefrontal cortex, which makes rational decision making, where we put on our shalrosh every weekday morning, it's it's um, driven by a much more emotional part of the brain, like the amygdala, you know, the center of the brain, and that cla- that clouds us, and that's ethical fading. Our thinking in in the actual heat of the moment is is very very different. That's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself by my lack of uh, Tanakh knowledge, but when David Amelech sinned with Bathsheba and the Navi approaches David Amelech and he doesn't say David Amelech, he had an affair with somebody who was married. He, he takes it through the backhand route and he says, you know, you have the poor man and you have the rich man and the poor man had only one goat, one animal and the rich had a whole flock and the rich man takes it to the poor. What would you do? What would you paskin? And David Amelch says that person should die. And I, I guess if, if you would have gone directly and said, you know, what'd you do? Well, it wasn't so bad. It, it was there was really a get there or something. I, I guess that's exactly what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. And it, it's, uh, it's 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 human nature. And and I I I have a feeling that most people aren't necessarily tuned into that, that part of themselves. One related area is something that um, um, I'm often asked by um, law enforcement people who specialize in like child protective services people. And they, um, when they ask me to consult with them in different parts of the world, they ask me, what is it about um, you guys, meaning Orthodox Jews, that um, you seem to have a very hard time um, reporting, reporting your own? You know, every other subculture, you know, if their kid is being abused, they immediately report it. And you guys seem to have a harder time than anybody else. You know, don't you care? Doesn't your religion teach you to care? And, you know, the answer is, which many others have, have noted, is it's such a different thing. If you're, if you're a teacher in a public school and you're making a report on suspected abuse, you're not going to go to shul the next morning with the um, family members of, of the person who you're reporting. Your kids don't come over for play dates um, after school to this house. You're, um, you know, you, you, you know the person and you may be worried about shaduchim for their children. And it's such a different process mm-hmm. when you know the person intimately. And I think that really explains it in a way that makes sense. It's in no way to justify it, but it is hard. It, it is, is compl- hard. Compl- and- complicated, huh? very complicated. Yeah. 
very complicated. So let's talk about the kids. You know, adults have find, found out about the story and kids are talking about it. But, but it, did, it, it could depend on the age of the kid and the access that they have to media. If you have a 20-year-old child as opposed to a 13-year-old child, as a 9-year-old child, should we speak with the children? If they know about the allegations, I would think, yes, but what do you say? And if they don't know about the allegation, should we speak with them? And as uh, the secondary question to them is, what do we do with the books? Right. Okay. So to start with the general question, um, you know, never waste a crisis, to quote, uh, you know, to quote the former mayor of Chicago. Um, You know, there's, um, um, this becomes a teachable moment. And if you could sit down and talk to your kids, even even younger kids about, you know, you may have heard your friends talking about this, because by the way, it's all over social media. Kids are talking about it. It's almost impossible to um, to avoid it. If you're in a neighborhood where kids aren't talking about it, it's a whole other thing. But if you're in a neighborhood um, where this is being discussed, um, then this is a chance to talk about um, how do we handle imperfections and mistakes um, how do we, um, you know, how do we, um, how do we properly uh, protect ourselves so that if it ever happens to you, um, the most effective sex abuse prevention programs do a lot of active role plays. Imagine if, you know, some kids comes to you during chakras and you see him stealing money from the, uh, from the stucca box. Do you report him? And what if he threatens you that if you tell anybody, he's going to really give it to you. And that's the way we give voice to values. That's the way we help our children learn how to really internalize our values. I, it would be a shame to waste this opportunity. Interesting. And, and, and when it comes to the books, do we, uh, I, I guess, would it, if we have to speak with them and teach them about the opportunity, it would conflict with it to have the books still lying around in the house. Yeah, and that's something that um, I struggle with. Some of the people who, um, some of the most painful things I've had to do after these situations is um, go through um, some of my lecture notes, some of my old PowerPoints, or even my my some of the stuff I've written, and um, get rid of, of quotes or the Torah that came from this person. And that's extremely difficult. It's interesting. I don't know if I'm allowed to quote somebody, um, you know, a, a respected posseg, but um, Rabbi Willig um, talked to me about this. And I don't know if he wants to be quoted, but he did talk to me about, you know, this particular situation. And he says he takes, some people obviously say, you, you can't, you have to, you have to get rid of their svarim, it's Seamus, and you have to, you have to sort of like cut off their Torah from your thoughts, which is very, very painful. He said, don't act right away necessarily. He said, take all their svarim. He said, take all of your notes on the shiurim you want to with them, put them in a bag, okay, and um, hide it for a while. Let it percolate for six months or so till the dust settles and, and the case might be adjudicated. We might have much more knowledge about it. And then you, could, then you can make the decision, which to me sounded like a nice in-between thing. I'm not posting, so I, I could only talk about this from a, you know, that kind of a wisdom that, uh, that he shared with me. Yeah, it, it is still allegations. And until the, everything is fleshed out, it is allegations. Put them in a box, let them sit there and uh, see where things uh, things fall out in the future. That makes sense. Well, Dr. Palkowitz, I just want to thank you for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
Joining us now is Dr. Erica Brown. Dr. Erica Brown is newly appointed at YU. She has a very significant senior role in Jewish leadership and values. She is a professor and a popular lecturer as well. She wears a lot of hats. Most relevant for today, she is the author of 12 books, a number of which are on leadership in the Jewish community, including a book entitled Confronting Scandal, How Jews Can Respond When Jews Do Bad Things. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. A pleasure. So let let me start at the beginning. That's a unique area to write on Jewish leadership and in particular leadership impropriety. So what inspired you to start researching and writing on when leaders, rabbis, and we're calling this specifically rabbis at risk, but it's not necessarily rabbis, leader impropriety. What inspired you to get into that area? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd use the term inspire. Um, what, maybe more what, uh, what urgency motivated me to get involved. And I'll say that uh, at the time, I was serving as the scholar in residence in the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. And it was, we were in a very significant recovery period after the Madoff scandal. And um, that had rocked the, I mean, it rocked the world, rocked the Jewish world, but it also rocked the world of Jewish philanthropies and Jewish communal organizations. We lost $10 million in our endowment. And I think there was a lack of trust. And everywhere I went, people wanted me to speak about the repercussions of the Madoff scandal, not so much on the the sense of documenting the details of of what, what occurred, but what the Jewish response should be. And I called my publisher at the time um, at Jewish Lights Publishing, and I said, Stuart, I think I think we need to I think you need to have a book on a response to this. And and I but I was finishing a book on, on Jewish boredom and I didn't have the time. And he said, you know, Erica, this is uh, you know, this isn't going to sell because it's June and the, and the scandal happened in December. I, I said to him, I don't want to write this, but I will write it if no one else will write it. He said, it doesn't, you know, it, don't write, don't write this because the scandal's going away. Sure enough, there was a huge sting operation in July of that year involving Svartim and Ashkenazim and organ selling and money laundering. And that was in the, in the middle of July. And I called Stuart up and I said, Stuart, did you see the front page of the New York Times? where there were people wearing kippot and um, police cautionary signs. And he said, I did. He said, go write the book. Um, so so that, that, that was really what set it off. And unfortunately, I could pull this book out every few months, sometimes every few weeks in terms of its resonance and its relevancy. Um, I have more to say about the, the sort of experience of writing that book and its response, but I'll, I'll, I'm answering your question. So I want to just focus on that. That's what, that's what got it started. So unfortunately, we, we uh, have kept that book relevant and every so often there are flare-ups of scandals that do come up. Most recently, Hopefully it will be the most recently still when this show gets aired is the Chaim Walder impropriety. And if we look at back at the scandals, as you were speaking, I, w- I was just thinking to myself, we have sexual impropriety, we have financial, we've even had the forced gets issue with the, with the group that was running around and, and beating men up to give the gets. Chazal tell us Rov Begezel, the majority of people do steal different forms of stealing and mute by Arias. Arias is a, a major challenge. 
Everyone tells Lashonara, which is a matter of feeling powerful over others. So we have three main categories then is, is money. We have uh, interpersonal uh, sexual impropriety and we have power issues. How would you say the scandals fall out? Is it always going to be in those uh, categories or are there are other areas that we unfortunately get into as well? I mean, I would say that, you know, there's DNA Mamanot and DNA Nefashot, and they're, and they're, and they're different. Uh, they're different types of scandal. And I think our community, unfortunately, tolerates um, certain scandals, scandals that involve uh, money more so than involve um, sexual impropriety. Uh, and I think that when you have a lot of scandal, um, people become inured to it. They think that this is normative. And the moment it becomes normative, you know, we have that Talmudic expression, you do it as if it's permitted to you. Now, of course, no one's going to say that these things are permitted, but they become tolerated in a different sort of way. Um, I pay very careful attention to scandals in general society. Uh, I've been working with uh, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt for some number of years on a book on forgiveness, and uh, we've tackled the public apology, which is sort of a, um, a you know, a, a, a standard convention almost, almost um, theatrical in, in, in its choreography of a celebrity or an artist or politician apologizing publicly, um, often not mentioning anything about what, what it is that they've done wrong specifically, and, and doing it as a way to continue um, whatever it is they, you know, re- a form of rehabilitation without real accountability. So I say that because I think we can't detach Jewish scandals from societal scandals and the way that they're managed. And they become almost like catnip, Hollywood catnip, you know, that people, uh, you know, they, 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 they're stimulating, they, 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 they go across social media very quickly um, without anyone really thinking hard and carefully about the components and society's reaction to them and communal reaction to them. And what we need to do from a point of view of ethics to ensure that these don't happen again. Because why, why do we have, we could have this interview and then and then a few months we'll do the same and then in a few years we'll do the same. It has not always been this way, Ari, not in my lifetime. But I think in the past, I would say certainly decade, it has become, decade, decade and a half, it has become almost conventional. We wait for the next scandal to hit. Right. So we have to look at it from two perspectives. Number one is the societal view and us as the uh, society, how do we view it when it happens? And we also have to look at it as the leader, the, the rabbi, and how he rationalizes his actions. There is no leader I can, I would think out there, rabbi or otherwise, that knows he's doing, thinks he's doing the right thing, especially with sexual impropriety. Maybe they rationalize it for financial impropriety. But how can we explain that? We have a, a rabbi who is committing sexual offenses or other crimes, and yet they're giving from the pulpit week after week, offering moral guidance, how does he rationalize it in his mind? How can he stand up there with a straight face and, and uh, continue in, in that position while uh, we have this impropriety going on in the other room? Right. So if you're asking me how people can be inconsistent and then inconsistent in the extreme, I think we all know that there are no explanations. I can't explain why anti-Semitism happens because it's irrational. And I, I can't explain why this happens, although maybe it maybe it supports more rational drives that people have for money, for, um, you know, uh, you know, for the fulfillment of sexual desires or perverse sexual desires. Um, what I what I can say is I, I, that I think um, I think that there are a lot of good people 
who start out with a commitment to public service and something happens along the way to achieving power that goes unchecked. I'm very, very concerned, particularly in the Orthodox community, that rabbis do not have regular annual performance reviews where they get feedback um, in a helpful, uh, not in a constructive way, but where they feel that there are certain checks on their power. You know, I, I, I was once uh, doing a course on leadership and a woman complained to me privately about how difficult her rabbi was and how unhappy she was. And I said, well, when, when is his contract up? And she said, oh, he has a lifetime contract, right? Lifetime contract and, and, there, and there's no mechanism. In fact, there are people who think it's absurd and disrespectful to give a rabbi a performance review, as opposed to seeing a rabbi as a servant of a community. And I mean that in the deepest sense of avdut, of, of, one's, uh, of one's public service. And in order to do that public service to the highest degree of integrity, you need to understand when you are, when you may be crossing inappropriate boundaries. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll mention specifically um, you know, we, we, I'm here in, in a suburb of DC and, um, I have been managing um, the repercussions of the Freundel scandal for, um, I would say, for all of these years on lots of different levels, Ari, in a very disturbing way. Just this week, someone said to me, uh, he was in conversation, uh, a rabbi with congregants who uh, no longer attend the mikvah because they were so scarred by their experience of, um, you know, of going through the, the Freundel incident. And so I think a lot of people don't understand the implications for, for, for all the rest of us of what happens when a leader does, um, you know, does something wrong. And the fact that we put a great deal of trust in rabbis. And we can't only talk about rabbis because they're executive directors, they're educators, you know, the other people in this in this horrible company. Um, but I think when a rabbi does it, um, it, it damages uh, people's observance of halakha in irreparable ways, in their sense of trust in Jewish institutions, um, trust in the rabbinate. Um, in order to in order to be an Orthodox Jew, you really have to believe in and in, in in the power of the rabbinate. Once you take that away, what else do you have? Right. That's right. the foundation of our halachic observance. Yes, yeah, so we, have, we have significant damage. And I guess the closer you are to that leader, the more damaging it is, it's going to be, as you're pointing out from the Freundel issues, that the people who uh, were in the mikvah that he was uh, scouting out, uh, they were the most scarred. And then so anyone they felt who... violated. And that violation is not that violation. It, you know, the, the, and, and, and again, as, as, a, as someone who observes halakha and has had encounters with people um, like this, not, not that incident, um, I think, I think, you know, you know, I, I double down on my observance, but I can appreciate that there are people who say, I, 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 I'm re-traumatized when I'm in spaces where this person led and this person was trusted and this person was cited and this person gave divrei Torah, as you pointed out, sermons about behavior and, um, and convention and community norms. And then, and then you feel that that whole world in some, in some way shattered for you. And shattered right. in a way that cannot be put back together. Right. So, so what I'm hearing on, on on the point here is annual reviews comes down to accountability. Accountability, and if the person knows that it's not a a, a life term that you're not being accountable for, but the board of 
of uh, directors will be reviewing or however it's done, we need accountability. So that, that's something that you have seen probably over and over again. What are some of the other lessons that you've learned from your, your research that maybe should be, should be applied in, in, uh, in, in the institutions that uh, could have these leaders that are at risk? Yeah, I would say one of the one of my own learnings about this was paying attention to how infrequently the issue of ethics comes up in schools and in shuls as topics of as topics of conversation and topics of instruction. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you a little bit of history of this book. So when I wrote this book, I was so committed to working on this problem that I took a leave of absence from work for a number of months. And I went to 19 cities, 19 cities to talk about this on a Jewish uh, book council tour. I was in Albuquerque and Richmond, Virginia and Chicago. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't remember all, everywhere that I went. And uh, often I'd be at a book festival and everyone would go to hear the person who wrote a comedic book or the latest novel. And I had, um, I had very few people who joined me in those sessions. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd had people come up to me and say, so glad that someone is doing something about this in, in a sort of almost condescending way like, thanks very much. This is your problem and not my problem to think about. And I interviewed a number of rabbis, Ari, when I wrote this book. And I, and I asked them point blank, but also uh, through anonymity, uh, why they don't speak more about ethics from the pulpit. And they had a rabbi say to me, there are congregants who, um, who, would, who would be outraged because they're some of the perpetrators of some of these problems, right? Maybe their name is on a synagogue wall, but they've, they've spent some time in jail, right? We have all kinds of, of, of joke terms for people who are sitting, right? It was because it's become sort of not quite commonplace, but regular enough that we, that we joke about it. And, um, and if you feel that you cannot speak about these things, uh, or that you can't have a curriculum in ethics in a Jewish day school, where you tell people how you 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 go through um, halacha and you go through philosophy and you you talk about how what it means to live as a mensch to live with accountability to not you know think about the Rambam and Hilchot Deot and Perakay and the, and the fifth chapter of of these laws of character of what the Talmud Chacham the way that a Talmud Chacham behaves in terms of financial accounting and 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 without suspicion of behaving in any inappropriate way. And I looked to myself and I say, that's that's just not the world we seem to live in. So it seems that for various reasons, people are checked out on this topic. They're, they're checked out, be it that the, you can't talk about it, you can't talk Ari, about it. It's my worst selling book. Now, not, not, not that any of my books sell well, but um, it's it, it, it was my book on the three weeks sold multiples in the first year uh, in the lifetime of that, of that book. That, so- um, it's interesting you say that because when, when I look back at some of the headline shows that I've done, so I, I did two on financial impropriety and ethics in the workplace. And those were to me fascinating shows, very important shows and intellectually very interesting shows. And when you look at the numbers and the downloads, and obviously I, I have a self-interest in pointing these two shows out for everyone to, to have them go and listen to those shows, but they, they uh, did not perform as well as when you talk about rabbis at risk. We'll see what happens with this show. 
and uh, when you talk about female rabbis and things along those lines. So, so I think that's exactly what you're saying. And you know, it's interesting. Somebody, we've gotten to the level of people sitting in jail that somebody was writing the halachas, a safer on the halachas of being in jail. So, unfortunately, uh, he was writing a safer because there was a need for it. And and, and I, I have a young chavrusa who was telling me he's uh, going out on on, on shiduchim, and there were four of the what he does first when he gets up with a girl is he, he Googles the father because it's happened four times that he was set up in New York with uh, with girls and the father was in jail. I think it's up to five or six at this point. So yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that's that's along the lines. And, and maybe that begs the question, you know, why people don't have interest when rumors start? Why do people even sometimes cover up these scandals? Is that, is that based on the same issues? Or is, is there something else going on there? You know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I, I do think that all of us, you know, all of us have issues that bring us shame and guilt and make us feel uncomfortable. We're all accountable. And so perhaps because we're afraid that in some way outing someone else will out ourselves or out the worst in ourselves, we almost want to cover it up. Um, one thing we, we haven't talked about at all in terms of the financial misdemeanors, Ari, is the fact that um, it costs a lot of money to live a Jewish life. You know, the Rambam's citing the Talmud. He talks about if you don't teach someone a profession, you teach them listot, you teach them thievery. I think there's a lot to that when you don't stress the importance of and the nobility of living and, and dignity of having a profession that enables you to afford your life and you have to afford your life and your life is an expensive life, then people will do things to justify. Um, and, 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 and maybe in some way we give that person some kind of psychic pass because we know that it's expensive to live a Jewish life. Um, you know, I think, I think when you, you're thinking about, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about scandal in the church, Ari, when I was writing the book, uh, the Catholic church and responses to that. And even when I was searching for a title for my book, I went on Amazon to see, well, what, did, what, what are books called that are dealing with the sexual, sexual problems in the Catholic church? And I couldn't find one book. How is that? How is that? How is that? Um, later on, uh, later on I, I, I was able to identify some titles. Um, but I think some of it happens when authority comes from on high and, and, then, um, and then gets more saturated in society than when authority is, a grass, is grassroots. Um, when you have a system, of course, in the Catholic system, there's infallibility. We don't have infallibility, but sometimes we treat people as if they're infallible when they're rabbis. Um, we don't sort of understand the humanity that we all and the flaws that we all experience. And so we give people a pass quite readily because we trust them in other areas. Maybe they're geniuses in, um, in learning. Uh, maybe they give a, a wonderful drusha. Um, and so we get fooled sometimes. Right. Now, now it does seem to me that uh, we are properly stricter or we, we will accept less in in with sexual impropriety than financial impropriety that, that financial hasn't caught up yet um, but it seems that we're in the right direction when it comes to sexual impropriety as we've seen with the reaction to the Chaim Walder allegations admittedly they are just allegations and we do have to keep that in mind but we see that people are definitively taking them very seriously um, but we don't see the same things when it comes to money laundering or 
you know, signing false documents when it comes to getting bank loans or labor laws and the like, those aren't uh, taken as seriously yet, unfortunately. So hopefully that will catch up as well. Yeah. Um, you know, there, I, I just, uh, when I was uh, finishing the book, I was contacted by two journalists who were doing research on this large sting operation that happened in New Jersey. They were journalists for the Star Ledger. And um, they asked me if I had seen the public documents um, that were um, that were being circulated about that case. And uh, he sent me he sent me an email with an attachment. And these were um, these were you know, recordings available in the public that documented when Jews wanted to launder money, they used the term mikvah as the place of laundering. They said to me, have you ever watched The Sopranos, which I had not. And he said, well, in The Sopranos, when you want to launder a thousand dollars, it's a box of ziti. Um, That's the code term. He said here, it's a tractate of Talmud. And when you see it with your own eyes, these code words that are used um, taking religious terminology and using it for this kind of purpose, you, you know, for me, it was a very, it was a very flattening, dispiriting experience, as you can imagine, uh, to feel that the terms that I, terms of holiness had been used. Um, to Profane, for the profane. Yes, to profane. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's straight, it feels, it feels like a straight transgression of, of our, of the mandate to, to live Al-Kiddush Hashem and not, and to avoid Chilu Hashem. Horrific, horrific. Let me ask you one final question. Uh, individuals that hear the news are familiar with the situations, and obviously we feel the trust that we have is broken. How do we come to grips with this? And admittedly, the vast majority of Rabbanim are tzaddikim. They are not involved in this. And that uh, maybe that's part of the answer is we have to bear that in mind. There are certain bad apples. They are involved in, in these atrocities. But still, we do look up to them as leaders or we did look up to them as leaders. How do we come to grips with these people that we looked at, quote unquote, as infallible and we see they are terribly fallible? Yeah, I, I, I think of um, I think it's good to uh, to make a distinction between people who fail the system and the system itself. As when people throw out Judaism because there's a there's a person who poorly represents Judaism, I think sometimes that's an excuse to get out of to get out of a lifestyle perhaps that you were never deeply engaged in. Um, I think there'll always be bad representatives in every profession and in all and 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 in all the co- corners of our lives. And that doesn't mean that we that we stop living ethically. Um, I think Judaism sets a very very high bar on ethical living, um, and um, and and that the anger gets displaced onto Judaism as opposed to being angry that someone couldn't live up to the tenets of Judaism. Um, I don't think we do enough, Ari, to really process this as a community of what what should we be thinking and doing and feeling and talking about in the wake of these things. It becomes this sort of social media storm in a teacup, as we're seeing with Chaim Walder. I'd love to see thoughtful responses of how educators in schools should respond to these things. I mean, you, you focus a little bit on rabbis. I think that there aren't only rabbis in this category, right? I think that there are lay leaders who, who engage in transgressive behavior, and we don't talk about how we should manage that as a community or issues of trust. Um, I don't think that we do enough leadership development in, um, in our community, both professionally and on a lay level to help people think about what it means to run institutions responsibly and ethically. There are organizations that have ethical boards and they also have, um, have a, a number that people can call 
um, to report an anonymously um, some kind of malfeasant behavior. Um, that's true in many of the organizations that I work with, less true in the Orthodox community. I think we assume a level of trust that sometimes we, we shouldn't. I know that organizations like NCSY have put lots of codes of conduct conduct into effect. And it's important to publicize those things and let people know. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of ways to respond to this. And I think probably the most important area is, is what you've just said, which is um, you don't lose sight of all the wonderful people engaged in these professions. And it's important that we that, that we tell those stories of the wonderful people. I mean, here we are, you know, Hanukkah time, that's when we're recording. And I think about the, the Maccabim and people who, who really weren't afraid to go against the stream uh, to stand up with conviction for what they believe in. And we are led by many wonderful, generous, intelligent, thoughtful and compassionate people. And we can't, we can't, we can't let go of that because there's some people who live on the darker side of our community. Right. Dr. Brown, I want to thank you so much for joining us. A lot to think about and a lot of very uh, keen insights uh, based on your experiences. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes. And just uh, because it's Hanukkah, I think, um, I think it teaches us all that we need to be the light. And, um, you know, we, we light individual candles, we get to the eighth night, and we see a whole community of candles, but that's dependent on each individual light. And so really be the light. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Feldman. Rabbi Feldman is a Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz and a professor at the Sai Sim School of Business. He's the head of a shul or sadia in Tinek. He serves on the editorial board of Tradition and has written numerous books, literally numerous books and articles. The most relevant for us is False Facts and True Rumors, Lashon Hara in Contemporary Culture. Rabbi Feldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ravari, for having me. Rabbi Feldman, uh, a very important question that I've been thinking a lot about is uh, somebody hears a rumor, a friend confides in somebody and says uh, there's something inappropriate going on with XYZ Rav, XYZ leader of the community, and he's well known, he's well regarded. It's difficult to believe such a rumor, but, but if it's true, it could be devastating. Are you allowed to believe that information and do you do something about it? So we actually have a, a very specific balance when it comes to believing such information, especially because the concern that there's a danger that he might pose to people and that danger might be direct or it might come as a consequence of influence or power. And if there is such a concern, so that takes a very high priority. And the idea of toeles, the idea of purpose, which is a function of the Torah commandment of that we can't stand by when somebody's at risk becomes a very, very big priority. That becomes something that we pay a lot of attention to. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we can and rush to believe something that may not be substantial and that may pose a risk to an innocent person's reputation and livelihood and all other aspects of his life. So we actually find that there is a very specific balance. It's a subject of dispute as to how exactly to apply it. But the Chafetz Chaim, for example, maintains what is really a chumrah in both directions. And I don't know if it's fully appreciated that it's a chumrah in both directions, that we have to be very careful to protect the innocent and to remove any danger from the public sphere and the private sphere, wherever that danger may be. And that doesn't necessarily have to equal believing it. 
And that might mean that we take it into account, but we don't necessarily assume that it's true, while at the same time taking protective action. And it sounds like that's the most likely interpretation of a Gemara Nida that has a phrase like that, that regarding Lashon Hara, even when we're not supposed to be Makabalit, we are supposed to be Choshesh to it. So there are a range of interpretations in the Rishonim what all those words mean. What does Kabbalah Lashon Hara mean? What does Choshesh mean? But the Chafetz Chaim especially has a certain understanding that it refers to taking all measures necessary to protect anyone who might be a victim, while not accepting it as true. And the Chafetz Chaim even goes further than that, and that raised the objection of the Chazanish that the Chafetz Chaim wrote, you shouldn't even believe it as a suffix. You should take action to protect, but don't even believe it as what we would call a suffix. And the Chazanish was quoted as saying, he doesn't know what that would mean. He says, Ain't It seems like a very theoretical distinction. What could that mean in the practical world? And it seems that what the Chafetz Chaim is saying is that even a suffix carries with it a stigma and carries with it a damage. And it's possible for both ideas to coexist, that you can take very strong action and very assertive action to make sure that nobody will be hurt. And at the same time, we don't have to assume that it's true or even to stigmatize the person with the possibility of it being a suffix, so to speak, and everything that carries with it, while at the same time we're taking whatever action necessary. Could maybe give a, a muscle that let's say you were about to invest your life savings with someone. And I happen to know that there's somebody with that name who is a crook who's going to steal all your money. There's three people with that name. So we're not sure if this is the person or not. So all we can clarify right now is there's a one in three chance this person is going to steal all your money. So would you invest with that person? probably wouldn't be able to. It's too dangerous. But at the same time, if I were to ask you, tell me, do you think he's guilty? So there's a two thirds chance he's not. I'll be rove he's not. But the two ideas can coexist. We can. Right. That's, a good, the, that's a good analogy. That's a good. So let, let's let's make this a little bit more concrete. If we talk about a couple people, don't worry, we won't talk about uh, people that, that we know, uh, but people who have been in the news about these issues. Let's talk about Brett Kavanaugh. He was a couple of years ago already that he was uh, up to be on the Supreme Court and something came out from distant past history, something that happened when he was in, in college or law school. And more recently, Andrew Cuomo, and there were serious allegations about ongoing abuse in, in his chatzer. So if, if you can apply the concepts that we saw of balancing the communal need to know something versus the uh, injury that could happen to the individual if we're making false allegations against them. So that actually reflects a little bit of this difference here, because in the Kavanaugh case, so they were talking about something that was an accusation from his teenage years, actually it was decades ago. So the question was not necessarily there was any basis to assume that he posed a current danger to anyone. The issue was his personal status. And is this somebody we want to have on the Supreme Court, which is an important issue also. It's also a concern for the public, but the threshold is going to be so much higher because there you're talking about someone's established reputation and just the question whether that reputation should be affected by something. In that case, also, there was only one accuser. It was far less of a volume of accusations, but also it's not any claim of a present threat. While in the case of Governor Cuomo, there were accusations about what he was doing in office with his political power and the concern that if he were permitted to stay in office, he would use that power to continue to abuse the position and to hurt people. That takes on a whole different aspect, even though there's some degree of toilets in both, but they're very, very different as far as the threshold for what we would look for in order to establish that there is a, a purpose here. And, and that was just assuming that Lashonora applies to, to non-Jews. Uh, and the post say, even if it doesn't, 
you still shouldn't do it anyway. But uh, that was just to illustrate the point here. So, yeah, so there's a lot so, to say about that topic. That's a, that's a whole other subject. We'll have to have a whole show on who does flush and horror apply to. Um, hopefully, people would listen to that show. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to find a, a more juicy title to that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, let's talk about this when it comes to journalists. A journalist finds out, a reporter finds out, and obviously they're in the business of getting a tip, a hot tip, wanting the scoop. I want to break the story, and and often. Oftentimes it is a tip and, and that's uh, not validated. It's uh, an allegation. It's an accusation. And, and at what point would a newspaper, a magazine be permitted to break that story? How much evidence do they need proof? Oftentimes there's not proof. Oftentimes there's not proof when it comes to these, to these allegations. So at what point would they be permitted to go public with, uh, with a story? And uh, where's the line that they have to keep it quiet as opposed to publicizing something? So that involves a combination of a lot of issues. One, the question from before of where the threshold is in order to protect the innocent and protect the public, which is a lower threshold than for other things, but still has to have some kind of substantiation, still has to have reglaim ladaver, still has to have some basis. But together with that, there's also the question of whether or not the newspaper is the right tool. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. It's a very nuanced question. Newspapers can do a lot of good for society. Shvos Yaakov wrote about reading newspapers on Shabbos, that it could have a role in doing a lot to keep society on a straight path and to keep people safe and also to improve society. But there's a phenomenal responsibility that comes along with it. And not everything about the industry always supports that model of responsibility. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So the one who is involved in making these decisions has to really have a very strong sense of what they're taking on when they do this. And there certainly are situations when a newspaper is the only tool to bring something to the public eye and to prevent the danger and to make a difference. But very often it's not. And it's sometimes hard for the editor to make that call because it's the only tool that he has. So, and it's the tool that's his living. So he may be inclined to think it's always the right tool. Sometimes it is. And if there is a sense that no one's going to do anything about this otherwise, or that there isn't leadership that are that is attuned to this, so then it may be the case, but there's a need to really be in touch with what's going on and to have your finger on the pulse of the situation and to know how these questions converge. Is there enough here to constitute at least the possibility of serious danger and potential danger? And certainly is it immediate danger? There are all kinds of different aspects of Toelis that are involved. This was relevant before to your point about the different situations about Kavanaugh and Cuomo, that there is a toelis of preventing immediate abuse. There's also a toelis of making sure that those who have gone through abuse are taken seriously and are given the help that needs to be offered in such situations. And also just for society as a whole, that there shouldn't be a statement that such behavior is okay or that it's tolerated because of any kind of a greater value. And sometimes that has been the perception and it's very crucial that for the good of society, for the good of individuals, for the good of the Torah, that no one gets that impression. But the question is, who is best positioned to make sure that that message gets across? Sometimes it'll be the rabbinic leadership. Sometimes it'll be the lay leadership. Sometimes a newspaper will be needed in order to make sure that that message gets across. But it's a question that's very, very specific to the circumstances. And sometimes in Hochus Lashon Hara, we find a little bit counterintuitively, that we focus too much on the big issues and not on the small issues. I mean, the big issues framed as our newspapers, okay, our internet reviews, okay, is this acceptable? Is, not, is that acceptable? And it really is going to depend on how it's utilized. 
So it's not the big questions, it's really the small questions in this circumstance, what's being brought to bear and how much do we know about what's necessary? So there certainly could be a toalis and there are certain times within our culture and our history where it may be more necessary than others if there is an attitude of neglect to situations like this that may be more necessary. But it's something that really has to be evaluated very carefully within every circumstance. And it's important for any one individual who has a tool at his disposal, whether it's a newspaper or any other such tool, or especially now where there are so many other tools which are not necessarily even held up to more basic standards, that everyone has to really think carefully if the tool that they have is necessarily the appropriate tool for addressing the situation. And, and is there a concept, and this is a foreign concept nowadays, because if you put something on the internet or you, you, you blast it through a text and it gets spread all over the place, is there a contact, a concept of localizing a warning, if possible? There's a predator, and he never leaves uh, whatever uh, whatever locale it happens to be. He lives in I don't know Chadera, or lives in Haifa or Yushalayim, and you just put up Pashkaville and you know the signs up all over in Yushalayim and say people don't publish this on the web because he's only uh, a threat in Yushalayim, or or is, did that concept not exist in Alacha? Theoretically, it all goes to the details because theoretically, I think there have been circumstances where such situations have been managed successfully. And there also have been situations where they really haven't. And I hope that our culture has learned a lot of lessons from how these things can sometimes slip under the radar and get out of control. And it's a question that really also goes to the individual circumstance of the situation, but there's no question it hasn't always been handled perfectly. And that's created some degree of mistrust in how the situations will be handled and the somewhat of a communal learning curve as far as trying to find that right balance. And of course, people's lives are at stake and people's souls are at stake. So it's a tremendously serious issue. And it's one that requires constant attention and constant learning from past mistakes. Where has where has something been successful, where has an approach worked and where hasn't it approached? I think there have been circumstances where a more local approach can be successful, but we also have to be very aware that sometimes people move to different localities or take on jobs in different areas where there's been terrible abuse that has happened because of that, because there hasn't necessarily been an eye watching that. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, you do hear about uh, abusers that were uh, evicted from one school and, uh, in the United States, and they find themselves in South Africa redoing what they did, and then they got caught there, and then they wind up in Australia. So I, I definitely, definitely hear that. I definitely hear the that. Terrible danger. Yeah. Now, now is, in all of this, is there a distinction? We've been talking about uh, primarily sexual uh, abuse. Is there a distinction between that and financial or are the, the Kalali and the principle is going to be the same regardless? We're going to have to look at the potential harm to individuals and how uh, the possibility of that harm and how people, many people were harmed. Um, is it going to be the same balance uh, that we're going to look at or are there differences when, when it comes to sexual versus financial issues? It's all a question of degree that there are certainly people who have been devastated by financial crime and there's certainly terrible damage that can happen from there. And even if it was only minor damage, so Losamad al-Damriyacha applies to all kinds of harm, but there's still the question of what's more immediate risk and how exactly do you evaluate it? And is it something that's reversible? And is it something that can be addressed? So all of these go into the equation. And again, also the previous point that there shouldn't be a picture of tolerance for 
crimes such as this of any nature. And so to the extent that there's a perception that uh, we don't care so much about financial crimes or we're okay with that, so that's certainly something that has to be addressed very strongly. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be done in the context of a newspaper publicizing anything about an individual and certainly not allegations that haven't been proven. And perhaps there's more time to allow an allegation to be investigated more thoroughly in situations like that. So that'll play a role. But the question of Toella certainly applies in the financial area and also the risk of a perception of being okay with that, which is really not okay, is certainly there as well. But how exactly that's going to play out is going to, again, be very much contingent on the circumstances and the individual aspects. Right. Well, Rabbi Feldman, I, my, my takeaway from all this is it is it is complicated. It's complicated and uh, the responsibility of uh, a newspaper, a website, or a headline show that the same would apply. Um, hopefully, we only report things that are commonly known and are not in the category of Lush and Hara. So uh, that's uh, what, what this show is about, is things that are more commonly known or very commonly known, unfortunately. Um, maybe it's, for, it's fortunate, it's unfortunate that the event occurs, but uh, it's, it's, uh, once it occurs and there's a danger, it should be publicized to avoid any, any uh, future harm. But we hear the responsibility of the websites, uh, the Jewish websites, to have a POSEC, a responsible POSEC. If anyone is looking, Rabbi Feldman in his spare time is available uh, to, to, <laughs> to ask, answer any shilas. Well, there are far better people available, but I would just emphasize that the idea of it being complicated is certainly true, but it sounds a little bit like a cop-out. But I think a part of the message, you know, we have a mitzvah in the Torah, according to the Ramban, when the Torah tells us to remember what happened to Miriam, the Ramban says that's one of the 613 mitzvahs that we have to remember. And it seems to reflect that Lashon Hara is challenging. It's not something that we can make an easy decision about. And that's how some of the Bali Musar understand why there is such a mitzvah, because it requires Zahira of the whole complexity of Miriam's situation, where she believed that she was accomplishing something, and yet she's held up as an example of the transgression of Lashon Hara. So if somebody like Miriam could have an issue here, so that's a lesson for all of us, because who's greater than Miriam? And yet it's not something that we can hide from. So therefore we have a lifetime of trying to learn. I think the reason there's been such an emphasis on studying the Chafetz Chaim's works over this past century is a recognition that it's something that requires a lifetime of developing sense sensitivities and of honing our instincts towards and recognizing that just because it's complicated doesn't allow us to run away from it because the harm on either side could be could be tremendous. So the risk of not saying something that needs to be said, as was emphasized in some of the literature before the Chafetz Chaim, that uh, be aware that the obligation to protect the innocent is absolutely crucial and vital, and there's no value in being machmir and not doing that, so to speak, and calling that a chumrah when it's really a tremendous pshia, a tremendous negligence, but at the same time, erring on the other side can do phenomenal damage also. So the fact that it's complicated requires us to put a lot more thought and effort into developing our perspectives. Absolutely agree. Rabbi Feldman, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, really important uh, lessons that we've learned here with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. Yisrael Levitz. Dr. Levitz is the founding dean of the Family Institute of Neve Yerushalayim. Obviously in Yerushalayim, he is a clinical psychologist, ordained rabbi, and a professor. And very relevant for our topic today, he published a book with the renowned Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tursky Zatzal, entitled A Practical Guide to Rabbinic Counseling. In fact, he has been training and instructing Rabbanim, Rabbinic students, for over 
35 years. Dr. Levitz, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Levitz, you literally wrote the book. You wrote the book, Rabbinic Counseling. So what I'd like to do first is talk about the unfortunate scandals that do uh, rear their ugly heads that we see sometimes, and then talk about methods or techniques that you teach and that other people can hear about today as to how we can avoid these scandals. So what really interests me, you know, we most recently we have the Chaim Walder scandal and we had the, uh, unfortunately, every few months, it seems that there's another scandal. And I, I would like to say there are tens of thousands of Rabunim out there. These are the way rare exceptions. And we're not only talking about rabbis, leaders, etc. And my fundamental question is when we have somebody in a position of power, be it a Rav, be it a leader, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Meaning, did this person maybe have some sort of pre-existing condition? Did they have an inclination to do these issues, to exploit women, to use their institution as a piggy bank? Or is this something that when you get into a position, something could happen, you're in a position of power and that may kick the Yetzirah in? Or, or is this the, just the typical Yetzirah that anyone else has anyone else may have for these type of issues. So what goes on here? What's, what's, what's the core root of somebody in a position of leadership or Rav doing something like this? Okay, that's a great question, Ari. And uh, I'm going to give you a rabbinic answer. It's uh, yes and no. <laughs> in terms of whether it's a pre-existing condition or not, um, I think the best way to answer that question is to, to understand that there isn't just one category of perpetrator. We have to, uh, there are different categories that perpetrators fall into. Uh, I want to uh, underscore what you just said, and that is that the vast majority of Rabbanim are upstanding, genuinely religious Yurei Shamayim, and we're not talking about them. Um, uh, but uh, let's talk about those who, um, move beyond the boundaries of what we expect of Rabbanim. So uh, there are different categories. Uh, one type of uh, category of a uh, uh, somebody who violates these boundaries is a predator. Now, a predator is someone who will seek opportunities to find a victim. Uh, they tend to be very narcissistic, have a sense of being invulnerable, uh, these are people without much of a moral compass. Uh, and these are the people, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but I guess the chicken, they seek positions that would give them the opportunity to act out. Now, these are the people that go into Chinuch, they look for vulnerable children, or they go to a schwitz with boys because the opportunity is there. And they don't take... They don't take responsibility for their own behavior. They tend to blame the other. You're able to say, well, he started in with me. I had one case a while back where one of these perpetrators, it was at a camp, he uh, took the boy's clothing when the boy went into the shower. And the boy had to run through the halls to get to his room. And that's when he grabbed him and brought him into his office. And when he was caught, he said, well, what do you expect? He was running through the halls naked. And this is a 
perfectly uh, great example of a narcissist who takes no responsibility for their own behavior. So that's the predator. And then there is the opportunist. The opportunist, the opportunist is just someone who looks for an opportunity. When, when an opportunity arises, he doesn't look for it, but when it arises, he seizes on it uh, if he feels safe doing it. Uh, when you mention uh, somebody who videos women in a mikvah, I don't know if I, such a person has never been my patient, but um, I don't know if uh, this was a pre-existing condition, whether he just found this as an opportunist or whether indeed he was a predator. Uh, don't know. But the opportunist could be a, uh, a fine rub who is overcome by Yetzirah and sees an opportunity. And I'll go into it a little bit more in terms of, you know, w- what happens uh, that gets a good person into a bad place. The third thing is called boundary crossings. Now, boundary crossings are very subtle. It's uh, Rabbanim have a very close interaction with people. And a boundary crossing doesn't tend to be a single event. It, it, it hides beneath the surface of a, a normal rabbinic relationship, uh, uh, a legitimate relationship like counseling, working together on a committee, uh, doing tzedakah projects together. And so there is a, there's a contact. All of this is very legitimate. But, but one of the things I do in my class in terms of sensitizing these beautiful young future Rabbanim to boundary crossings and the subtlety of them is to recognize within themselves when there could be a boundary crossing. For example, if you begin to have a special feeling for a congregant, uh, you see them at unusual hours or in private settings, and I suggest they not do that. Um, I suggest they not share personal or intimate information with their congregant. That's crossing a line. Now, it's not it's not necessarily not necessarily a halachic violation, though it could be. But it and it's certainly not a legal uh, a legal problem. It's just a boundary issue of crossing a boundary that Rabbanim need to be very careful about. Uh, when a rabbi begins to see himself looking forward to seeing somebody or consciously dressing up in a certain way before they see them. Um, and of course, it's inappropriate for a rabbi to compliment a congregant, a woman, on her dress, saying, oh, that's a beautiful dress, is wrong. It's crossing a boundary. Right. So, uh, so what I'm hearing is we, we have three categories. Number one is the predator. Number two, the opportunist. And number three, the boundary crosser, which it seems to be number three could be anyone. That's like the, the typical Yetzirah case that uh, things slip over time, the slippery slope. When it comes to when we think about these leaders, these rebunning that we look up to and, and a scandal occurs, it, it obviously shakes us to the core. And we want to understand how could this happen? What were they thinking? So it seems that if we're in category number two predator, 
that they're just right. thinking about what they want. It's right. a, and, and this is a pathology. And um, uh, it's a separate topic as to how a board that hires rabbis um, would have to weed out a narcissist. But uh, that's a whole other topic. And uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do because narcissists um, tend to be very charismatic and um, charismatic narcissists are very seductive, and they really know how to engage people. Uh, and um, if they're guided by uh, internal principles, halachic principles, a sense of shavisi Hashem lenegdi summit. If they if they have an internal moral compass, they're fine. That's beautiful. Some of our great leaders are just that. But if they lack that, or if they lack something within themselves that has a need for approval, for um, being uh, worshipped as something above uh, the human being that they are, which narcissists have that need, and they don't have that moral compass, those are the dangerous people. And, and then are they just worried about getting caught or, or they're just not even sensitive to that issue? Well, they're worried about getting caught, of course, and uh, they think that it's safe. Uh, even though, um, you know, the danger of getting caught today is different than getting caught 100 years ago. 100 years ago, believe it or not, people looked the other way or people said it can't be true and they let it go. Um, today, with the internet and with social media, uh, before you can blink, it's all around the community and uh, your life has been devastated. So it, the consequences of crossing the line today are far more devastating than they were. So that, to a great degree, can keep somebody in line. Um, but uh, I, I think your question is, how, how can they do a thing like that? I mean, yeah, after all. That, that is that, that is the question. Predator, we've discussed. And that, so we have the opportunist and the boundary crosser. And as an overlay, because I definitely want to hear how they're rationalizing these things, number two and number three, um, it seems that the predator, that's why we have some of these predators that have uh, taken advantage of 20, 30, 40 women. I would think that category two and category number three are much more limited. If you're the opportunist, you have a more of a moral compass. If you're the boundary crosser, you're, you're normal. But you push the envelope, I would think that it's going to be a, a much less of, of, of a scandal, at least in terms of numbers, than if we're in predator category number one. There is a, uh, there is a category number four, uh, oh. which is a boundary violation. And that's already crossing over the line. That's already doing something that's either totally inappropriate for a rav or illegal. Uh, and here the Sahara has taken over. Um, and, uh, and, and it's the, it's the boundary violation that we are very, that's what, that we're concerned about. Look, if a Rav, uh, compliments a woman's dress, well, she's going to pick up that this is not appropriate. Other people will as well, but they're not firing him necessarily for that. They'll just say he's friendly, uh, or however they'll rationalize it. But a boundary violation, uh, once that is discovered, then already we have all the Chil Hashem that we are concerned about and all the consequences. By the way, uh, you know, when I teach 
the Rabbanim, uh, the future Rabbanim, some of them have smicha. I, I call them my Erev Rav. Um, they're beautiful, beautiful young men. And uh, I say to them, look, uh, all of us are vulnerable. You need to understand that Ein Apetropos Laarius means that any one of you sitting here, and I know you're all tzaddikim, and they probably are. They're wonderful. They're sitting and learning. They're sweet, bright boys. But any one of you is vulnerable. And that's why we're teaching this. Um, and then the rest is siyata deshmaya. We don't have control over people once they go into the world. Right. That's that's for sure. So so when you're teaching them, what are the gedarin, the protections that you say you need to institute these things in order to ensure that you are protected? Well, uh there's something called counter-transference in psychology. It, those are the feelings that are triggered in the rabbi or in the psychologist, in the therapist. Those are the feelings that are triggered towards the client or the, the congregant. And um, I spend time on counter-transference. I speak to them about, uh, uh, it's, it's more than speaking, we, we have experiential exercises uh, and um, uh, it's a way of learning that's on a very different level than just cognitively learning a concept called counter-transference um, and, and how to begin to recognize when they themselves are feeling anything that is counter-transferential. Um, and um, uh, they do learn about boundary uh, crossings. Uh, they learn about the consequences. I do want to scare them a bit because they have to take something out that's a little bit traumatic so that it, it's, it's helpful um, because if any of them step over the line, it's, it's destructive to the victim. It's destructive to themselves, their career, their home life, their reputation, and to Klal Yisrael, who begin to look at Rabbonim in a different way. They learn that a Rab, despite what he might feel, it has unequal power. He's in a position of power relative to the congregant, that a Rav ought not to be friends with people. Friendly, yes, but you can't be a friend in the same way that you have other people who are friends. Um, and then I, uh, I uh, mentioned some of the more obvious, we talk about some of the more obvious uh, um, boundary crossings. Uh, don't, don't see a woman or a youngster alone in a building at night. Um, if you give someone a ride home, um, see if somebody else can be in the car or have them sit in the back. Um, try and avoid that if possible. Uh, don't meet outside of your office, like for lunch or a restaurant. Um, and be aware of your own feelings. Um, be aware of the vulnerability and, and the neediness of a client, they're, they're of a congregant. Some congregants look up to their rabbi and begin to worship him, and he begins to feel very good about that because not everybody expresses their uh, worshipfulness as this person does. And his needs are met, and with the attention he gives her, her needs are met, and you're already beginning to cross a boundary. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you hear the same language in the workplace. He's having issues 
with his right. she's having and they're feeling each other's their psychological needs and one thing leads to another. So I guess that begs a very fundamental question. Should a Rav be involved in certain of these more risky activities? For example, uh, marriage counseling, acting as a marriage coach. And it's not necessarily a Rav. We have uh, individuals, marriage coaches who are not Rabbanim. We have uh, Chaim Walder who was involved in uh, coaching kids and, and whatever ever it was, should that be done? If with somebody with the opposite gender at all, it's, it's difficult to say as a rub, a woman comes to you and says, I'm having marriage problems, but intrinsically and fundamentally, that is a conversation that is risky with somebody of the opposite gender. So is it, should this be happening or should he be sending her off to a female psychologist? So uh, let, me, uh, let me tell you that you've touched a very sensitive uh, area in terms of my own feelings about Rabbanim doing marriage counseling. Marriage counseling or marital therapy is one of the most difficult, challenging areas of psychotherapy. It's not just counseling. I give a course in couples counseling for Rabbanim and uh, teach them how to assess a marriage and where to send that marriage. Is it an intimacy issue? Is it a a problem that goes back to the way they got married? Is it something a lot more serious? It's usually far above a rub's competence to do marriage counseling. A rub should not be doing marriage counseling. He's not trained to do so unless he is. If he has another degree and specialized training in couples therapy, that's something else. Uh, then uh, we have to think about, should he be doing this with a congregant uh, to begin with? But it should be a very limited intake, so to speak. And then to be able to have a cadre of professionals, uh, specially trained marital professionals to whom to send. But the Rav or the Rebetzin should not be doing marriage counseling. Um, Well, that's uh, a a position that I take, having seen disasters coming from Rabbanim, who with the best intention thought all they need to do is give a little advice. And it exploded. Yeah. Uh And when it explodes, so does a family along with it. Right, 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 right. And the generations that follow. Right. Now, when it comes to the Gadarim that we were talking about and teaching the rabbinic students and leaders of the generation uh, do X, Y, and Z, if we're talking about the, the serial predator, I, I would think that those Gadarim are not going to be effective. That's true. Right. We're so, not talking about the predator. The predator is a pathological and uh, an individual with a pathology and um that's way beyond the scope of a discussion like this. Right. So, so when it comes to if people are scouting out, you have the board of directors looking for a, uh, a principal of a school or a principal hiring teachers. Or if you work at a youth organization and you want to hire advisors or somebody to run the organization, are there certain character traits? Uh, obviously, we want somebody who's outgoing and, and somebody who can be popular and looked at as, as normal and, and a leader. But on the other hand, it seems like those certain character traits 
may cut in the opposite direction. So uh, are, are there red flags that we can look at when we're trying to hire these type of people is that we can say, you know, we just may be of concern. We have to look a little bit deeper. And, and, and based on that, is there any psychological test that we can do? There certainly ought to be guidelines, uh, very clear guidelines as to what a teacher or a principal or a rub uh, it's more complicated with the role of a congregation. He's the more of the ashram, but certainly with the principal and teachers in terms of being alone with students, in terms of physical touch with students, in terms of uh, um, anything that could be interpreted uh, as, um, as a boundary violation. Uh, now, on the one hand, Rabbanim have to be, and teachers as well, have to be very warm, very um, uh, open and, uh, and uh, involved in the lives of their congregants. On the other hand, and you don't want them to be cold and distant. And uh, sometimes a hug is a good hug, but that's a, that's a judgment call. And um, uh, I, I think that if there are clear guidelines, that can be uh, one facet. Uh, I, I don't know if it's done. I do think that a psychologist, if that was, if that was part of the uh, uh, process of the board to send a, a rabbi before he's hired or a teacher before he's hired to a psychologist or to administer psychological tests. I don't know if that's the norm, uh, but is it possible to pick up narcissism? Yeah, most probably. I think a, a trained psychologist can do that. Um, I'm not sure about whether that's something that uh, I'm comfortable even suggesting, but um, certainly the guidelines are important. Right. I, I can certainly see a, a candidate uh, being highly uncomfortable with getting a, a psychological review as part of his uh, package of uh, application for a position. That's right. So that's why I say that with uh, great reluctance. One final question that really comes to mind. You know, we're, we're right now, this has been brought on by Chaim Walder, but this is not the first time this has happened, obviously. And there are other people who have written books, Svarim, that were used by Klali. So I, I had a set of Svarim that was written by a uh, one of the former chief rabbis of Israel that he himself was involved in uh, scandal, scandals, and uh, set, spent time in uh, jail in Israel. And uh, in the end of the day, I had his set of books and I put it into Geniza. What are your thoughts on should be we reading the books? Should we not? I mean, if they're good books, the fact that it has somebody's name on it, should we not read those books or uh, should we just look at the substance, the content of the book? And if it's something that's positive, regardless of the history and background of the individual, should we continue reading them? You know, on the one hand, Rabbanim are different than professors. A professor can uh, be a very immoral, unethical person and teach a course in ethics. Uh, and uh, a Rav, however, is looked upon very differently. He can't be Machal Shabbos and teach courses on, uh, on Kedusha Shabbos. On the other hand, Reb Meir followed Acher around and he learned from him, even though he was Acher. 
So I, I think it's a, it, it boils down to a very personal choice. I, I don't think there's a rule of thumb that if somebody's acted out in a way that's totally inappropriate, that you burn all their books or throw them into Geniza. Um, if you're uncomfortable with it personally, and you're so angry at the person and so upset and so disillusioned that you say, I want nothing to do with them, that's your personal choice. On the other hand, I have books of people as well, uh, whose victims were my patients. And um, I, I know exactly what they did, how they groomed my patient, told him how wonderful he is and how he's going to be the, the next great Gadol Hador. And, and coming from this Rebbe, it was so, it was so uh, uh, uplifting. And then, of course, he took him to a beach and he attacked him. Now, I have his form. Now, I don't learn them every day. But um, I look at them now and then. As if there's no upper courses in them, um, I, I have something to learn. But that's my own personal uh, preference, and I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't make a halacha uh, lemaisa on this. Very good, well, Dr. Levitt. It's it's been a, a privilege having you on the show, and it really does give some insight. Those four categories, in particular as to uh, what's going on out there. And uh, obviously, category number one, the predator is the most dangerous. But obviously, everyone has to know that there's a Yetzirah, and that's how we are created. And the more Gedarim we can build and not put us into those situations, obviously, that uh, that must be done. Uh, that's true. And uh, there's one more thing about boundary crossings that uh, can alert a rabbi that he is in fact crossing that boundary. And that is if he keeps it a secret, if he keeps the relationship a secret from his wife, if he can't talk to his wife about what's going on with this individual, that already is a sign that he might be on that slippery slope. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us.